This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Canada's first prime minister is once again at the forefront of the current conversation. A new Angus Reid poll finds most Canadians want Sir John A. Macdonald's name and his statues to stay in public view. We'll re-examine his history with Indigenous peoples. And as TIFF begins, we'll look at a fascinating new documentary about the last living prosecutor from the Nuremberg trials. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Venezuelan retirees protested this week against a new system to deliver their pension payments. They lined up outside banks and blocked roads demanding their pensions be paid out to them amid a current economic crisis. The government is making retirees use a special homeland card to get paid online. Critics say it violates human rights because many pensioners are confused about technology. Actress Gwyneth Paltrow's controversial lifestyle brand Goop has been slapped with penalties for unsubstantiated claims. The products that spawned the charges are Goop's infamous vaginal eggs and an essential oil-like product. Goop advertised that the jade and rose quartz eggs could balance hormones, regulate menstrual cycles, prevent uterine prolapse, and increase bladder control. The company was fined $145,000. For 100-year-old Polito Oliva, jumping out of a plane is no big deal. The 30-year Army veteran whose career took him through World War II, the Korean and Vietnam Wars, did his first freefall tandem parachute jump last week to celebrate his milestone birthday. Hey, we did it, all right. (laughs) Perfect job. His friends are encouraging him to set a new record for the oldest skydiver. That is currently held by a 102-year-old man from New Jersey. Here's a marriage that's lasted, and according to the Guinness Book of Records, a Japanese couple has been certified as the longest married couple in the world. Masao and Miyako Matsumoto have been married for 80 years. The couple, aged 100 and 108, have five daughters, 13 grandchildren, and 25 great-grandchildren. They live in a seniors facility in Japan. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. How should we remember our first prime minister in light of the fact that he was an architect of the residential school system? According to a new Angus Reid poll, most Canadians oppose removing his statues, which is what happened in Victoria, and they say we spend too much time apologizing for this chapter in our past. For his take on the historical record, I talked to Patrice Dutille, professor of politics and public administration at Ryerson University. 
when you start putting things in perspective and putting things in context, the history of Johnny McDonald is radically different. When you put Johnny McDonald against what's happening in the United States, again, the picture is different. The United States are literally annihilating the, the prairie Indians. These people are coming up north. They are literally refugees. What does the, the government of Johnny McDonald do? Does it kick them out? It says, absolutely, come. We're going to do the best we can. We're going to sign treaties. We're going to create reserves. And we'll do the best to provide you with food while you transition to an agricultural style of life. You know, we're talking about a particular group of indigenous people, which were the prairie people. Right. There's no talk about the, the indigenous people in the Maritimes or in Ontario or in Quebec. And that's important for people to remember. Now, in the prairies, we do have a very particular situation. And it was a, a perfect storm of the death of the buffalo, of the bison, which completely transformed the way of life of the people that had been living for 15,000 years this way. This changed, and at the same time, the government of Canada finds itself having to negotiate with the indigenous people to find them a place on the prairies, because we were developing, Canada was developing the land, it was developing the railway, there was a race to get to the Pacific Canada was very concerned about establishing its sovereignty after the Americans had finished their civil war. So Macdonald got into a real tussle with prairie indigenous people, with Louis Riel, with the Métis people. There was war. There was a fight in the spring of 1885. People died on both sides. People were found guilty. People were hanged. I'm quoting from Professor James Dashuk from yes. a book called Clearing the Plains, yes. and he says there was outright malevolence of the McDonald government in bringing about the starvation of Plains Indians, and he's quoting, they're saying that they starve uncooperative Indians onto reserves and into submission. Again, let's be clear what's happening here. Put yourself in the time of the 1880s, there is no railway yet. The people who were on reserves did have access to food. It is impossible for the government of Canada to feed Indigenous people that cannot be found. Those that were on reserves got access to food. But we're talking about the 1880s. Out of contracts, they had, the government of Canada had agreed to provide food. It did its best. At the very same time that some people in the prairies are dying of starvation, 5,000 people are dying in Quebec of smallpox. What about his legacy with residential schools? How should we view that today? Well, you know, seen from today, it's terrible. Today, we would never tear children away from their families because today we're smart. You know, you used to smoke. It was a terrible thing. Now we don't smoke. We have learned as a society that things don't work. And it's the same thing with residential schools. What did Johnny McDonald want? What did Hector Langevin want? They wanted exactly what the indigenous people wanted. In the treaties, the indigenous people said, we want education, because the chiefs in those days really want to adapt to, as well as they could, to modern life. So we provided them with schools, and they discovered that it's very difficult to teach little kids English when they're still in their communities in distant parts of the prairies or of Ontario. It happened in Ontario a lot, too. So they said, well, let's take them out. Let's force them. It was a stupid policy. But in the 19th century, the idea that they should maintain the indigenous way of life was considered in white society to be completely absurd. 
These people need to find jobs. They need to integrate into the industrial economy. They need to be like the rest of us. That was their thinking. It was a complete mistake. And it did real harm. We have to remember about 10% of the population went to residential schools, and that can cause real harm, but it's still 10%. And, you know, and, and we, we only learned this recently. We, were, we, we had residential schools until the 1980s. I mean, how slow are we to learn? But that's the way we are. To blame Johnny McDonald is to blame all of Canada for the last 130, 150 years. The poll said that most people think we apologize too much to First Nations. Would you agree with that? I, I really hate the word apologize. And, and, you know, of course, we mistakes were made. And I don't want to use the passive disingenuously. People made terrible mistakes. The trick in governance is to do better. And let's do better. Let's do it right by the Aboriginal community. I think most Canadians agree with this. The reality is that they still don't. They don't have access to education. How is that in the 21st century? That's completely wrong, and I think most Canadians want that fixed. We made mistakes, but let's not go on about it to the point where we today have to carry a burden that was struck by our forefathers 100 years ago. I think we have to move on. One of the things that people like in that poll is keep the statues, but also you can have a plaque telling the history of residential schools. Yeah, I mean, why not? You can do that. I like the idea of a monument to victims of residential schools. Should we have a day of remembrance? That also comes up in the poll. You know, I'm not sure if I go to that degree, but this is all part of a good, sane discussion of our history. Let's be honest and let's be fair to our history. Let's look at what things were done right. Johnny McDonald did a lot of things right. And today, I'm with those people who agree that if we have a better society today in Canada, and it's not perfect, it's because Johnny McDonald, in his attitudes and in his policies, did create a spirit of unity. John A. managed to keep the country together, and the country supported him. This is why people who are fans of John A. McDonald, who want to keep those statues there, want to remember a man who thought of Canada first, who thought of defending Canada, of ensuring that Canada would survive as a nation distinct from the Americans. Without John A. McDonald, it would have been very difficult for this country to hang together, and we owe him a great deal. He made mistakes? Absolutely. There's no prime minister that has not made catastrophic mistakes. But let's remember what good he's done. Let's remember the harm he's done. But the statues were there because people thought that John A. mattered to them shaped their time, and we have to respect the wishes of our ancestors. Okay. Patrice Dutille, thanks so much. My pleasure. That was Patrice Dutille from Ryerson University. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, he was the chief prosecutor at the Nuremberg Trials, and his advocacy led to the establishment of the International Criminal Court. A new documentary looks at the life of Ben Ferenc. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. He's considered a hero by many, and now there's a film about his life that was screened at TIFF on Friday. At 99, Ben Ferenc is the last surviving prosecutor from the Nuremberg trials. He's still active, pursuing a lifelong quest for peace and justice all these years after his landmark work. I spoke about prosecuting evil with the Toronto filmmaker Barry Averidge. I saw an interview that Ben was doing with Diane Sawyer, and I was so riveted by this man, not only because he's a geriatric wonder, but because he's been doing this masterclass 
for 70 years on how the world should live and how we should conduct ourselves, and nobody seems to listen. And you'd think that after he was in Nuremberg and walked through the camps that the world would be scared straight and never go down that path again, but we just keep seeing it over and over again. So I, I just felt that, you know, there's been so many stories on Ben, but there needs to be a feature film to make sure that his story, his DNA, his uh, mantra lives on forever. It's a really important story to tell, especially in light of scary statistics like two-thirds of millennials in the States don't know what Auschwitz yeah. is. Yeah, and, and the rise of the right extreme in Europe and certainly the Ku Klux Klan and, and whatnot. I mean, it's continuing insanity that where history is repeating itself. Or You just have to see and listen to Ben and know that there's got to be a better way. And does he have a sense of that? He does, Libby, but he's so extraordinarily encouraged. And you'd think, how is that possible, given what he's seen, what he has smelt, what he has witnessed? But yet he's encouraged because he has small victories along the way, where the rest of us would go, God, it's getting bad and getting worse. But he remains encouraged. I don't know how, but he remains encouraged. Just when he's finished doing the Nuremberg trial, he could have gone home, had an you know, exceptional career in New York as a lawyer, celebrated Nuremberg attorney uh, or prosecutor, and yet he stays to deal with reparations. He stays to deal with, you know, with the preservation of the cemeteries, which the Germans were going to just bulldoze. And he's just got this life of service. And the way he made it sound, I don't know if he was just being modest. He said, well, okay, you know, the the law firms, when he came home, said, well, if, if I've got to prosecute any war criminals, I'll call you, but I do you have that, clients? Yeah. I love that. And he ends up becoming sort of the first, you know, human rights lawyer in New York taking these crazy cases and, and becomes extraordinarily wealthy doing it because nobody's really practicing human rights and personal injury the way, you know, he started to do it. So he becomes famous, becomes very wealthy doing it, and gives away every nickel. Back to the trial at Nuremberg, Mm -hmm. again, the story seems so extraordinary because they were supposed to do just 12 trials. Yes. And he gathered a team to collect evidence. He got the evidence he needed. He said he stopped counting at a million killed. Yeah. And he went back. And he was told, sorry, we we can't do this trial. We don't have the manpower. It hasn't been authorized. And the way he tells this story, why don't you tell that story? Well, I mean, you know, Ben is sort of the the, the army identifies him. Patton identifies him as as an expert in collecting forensic evidence. So he goes into the camps and starts to collect evidence, goes to Germans were brilliant in keeping records. And so he's collecting evidence for the 12 trials, but happens to find this book, the Eisengruppen book of the records of this killing squad stops at a million deaths and then runs back to Berlin and says, look at what evidence I have. And they said, it's enough with the trials, which was code for, you know what, we've had enough. Everybody in Germany and the Germans and the Americans were becoming bored of it. And they said, we've made our headlines. We got the big guys. It's enough. And Ben was relentless in saying, you can't let these guys off the hook who've killed over a million Jews and gypsies and whatnot. We, we have to prosecute. And that's when Telford Taylor and, and Robert Jackson, who are the lead prosecutors in Nuremberg, say, you want to do it, you do it. He's 26 years old. He's never practiced law. You know, he's just out of Harvard into the army. And so he literally stands on a phone book because he's very small and, and prosecutes these 12, not, and, he, and he specifically chooses the, uh, these Nazis that are super educated. He didn't want the everyday person that was conscripted into the army, into Hitler's army. He wanted people that were super educated to make a point and saying, look, these are educated people that went along with this. And so he, he's quite meticulous in how he goes about prosecuting the cases. He 
became upset when they were all sentenced to hang. He's not a capital punishment guy. So, you know, and that's an, we've had a lot of conversations about that. And I used to debate this all the time with the late Eddie Greenspan, criminal attorney, and, uh, and we used to fight all the time about capital punishment. Ben was one of those guys who felt that, you know, there need to be a just punishment, but it wasn't death. Didn't need to be an eye for an eye, that they needed to go away to prison potentially forever. It's nice to see one of the good guys who lives to 98 and is completely lucid, because usually you read something about some Nazi and we're supposed to have mercy because, uh, you know, they've had a good life and they're in their 90s. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, no sympathy here for that. But Ben is one of the good ones. And, and he is, you know, as, as I was mentioning, as, you, as you'll see in your viewers, your listeners will see in the film, he does 100 laps a day in a swimming pool. He does 100 push-ups, 98, going to be 99 next spring. And just has this regime and this will to live. And I'm, I'm convinced of, of, of what's kept him alive is him remaining current and relevant. He has an iPhone. He has an iPad. He reads everything. He knows what the latest books and music and articles are. He keeps his mind so active. Do you hope to reach a particular audience with this? Or what do you hope to accomplish with the film? You know, I've made 45 documentaries, and I'm I'm probably proudest of this because I've made films about a lot of bad people. I've made films about interesting subjects that are interesting to me. But this is a message, and it's not just about – I don't want it sort of niched as a Holocaust film because he goes on – that's only half of his career. He goes on to establish the International Criminal Court, which is extraordinarily vital. Uh, and, you know, and the message is to take a pause before we invade a country, take a pause before we kill the person next to us and see if we can work it out. Okay. It's an important film. Thank you for making it. Thank you, Libby. That was documentary filmmaker Barry Averidge. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, we celebrate a man who became a musical legend after a very short career that ended in tragedy. Otis Redding was his name. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. It's time for your international arts date book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. We begin at the Princeton University Art Museum in New Jersey. Picturing protests is an exhibition honoring the marchers in the 1960s who supported civil rights and opposed the Vietnam War. Playwright Tennessee Williams was also an artist, and nine of his rare paintings are on display at the Jewish Museum of Florida in Miami through October 7th. Iconic actress Diana Rigg wraps up her role on Broadway as Mrs. Higgins in My Fair Lady. The final performance at Lincoln Center is tonight, and the Canadian installation is offering an immersive journey through evocatively named cities Hope and Happy Adventure as the second London design Biennale takes over Somerset House for the month of September. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Date Book. Today marks the 77th anniversary of the birth of the great soul singer Otis Redding. He was born September 9, 1941, but sadly only lived to 26. In December 1967, he died after his tour plane crashed into a lake in Wisconsin. 
During his short career, Redding's big voice made him a legend and helped define the soul sound of the 1960s. He inspired so many singers that came after him that he earned the nickname, the King of Soul. His most popular song was recorded just three days before the plane crash and would become the first posthumously released single to reach the top of the Billboard charts. Here it is, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be That was Otis Redding with Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. He would have been 77 today. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.